Welcome to the Central Christian Church Podcast. We pray this message helps you find and follow Jesus. If you would like to connect with us more, please visit us at centralsj.org. It was in the third century BC that the Greeks came up with the first list of the seven wonders of the world. And on that list, there were things like the pyramids in Egypt, the the hanging gardens of Babylon, the the lighthouse in Alexandria, the, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and the list goes on and on. But if you were to ask me, what are the Top seven, wonder, seven wonders of the world, uh, whenever it comes to the spiritual realm, whenever it comes to spiritual truth, what, what might those be? Uh, I'm not sure what all seven would be, but I know it would be at the very first on the list. And it's our big idea for today. And it's actually found in Romans chapter five and verse eight. And it says this, but God shows, God demonstrates, God displays his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't just say he loves you. God doesn't just mention it. He doesn't just write you a letter. He displays it. It's evident. It's displayed through his demonstration, his sacrificial death on the cross. If we grasp that, if we begin to understand that, if we sit in that for a little bit, if we marvel at that, if we marinate on that truth, If we let it sink into our hearts, it's a game changer. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way you approach faith. It'll strengthen you in a way that nothing else will. It'll create an intimacy in your relationship with God. It'll bring joy into your heart in the midst of any season and any situation that you might face. It enhances stability in your walk with God and ultimately it leads to evangelism as we were compelled by like this this jaw-dropping reality that the creator of the universe loves you loves me to that degree. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. And, and as I mentioned last week, man, this has just been my prayer for you. It's been, been my prayer for our church in, in 2023. And uh, so I hope, I hope you allow this to, to sink in. Here's what, what Paul says in Ephesians 3.17. He says, 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 and I pray that you would be rooted and established in love. And I love this. This, this word rooted, it's an agricultural term. It's this idea of a plant with roots going down deep and it draws nutrients. It it sustains strength. It gets stability. And it's drawing all that from from being rooted in the love of Christ. Not only that, but but this established. In Greek literature, this is an architectural term. Think of a a building. It has a, a foundation. And if you, the building is going to go way high. Like if it's going to be a skyscraper, then you got to really dig down deep to get a solid foundation. And the same is true for you. The same is true for me spiritually. That if we want to grow in God, we want to have, have this, this be, a, be a giant of the faith that we all aspire to be, then it requires us to have this solid foundation. That, and what's our foundation? It's built on the love of Christ, an understanding of that love, a grasping of that love, an anchoring into that love, that you would be rooted and established in love. It may have power together with all the saints to grasp. This is a word we talked about last week, but it's to take hold of something that wasn't yours before. It's to perceive something that you've never perceived before. It's to understand something that you've never understood before. And no matter how long you've been walking with God, no matter how much you've studied his word, here's the good news for you today. There's more. There's more revelation of his love. And I pray that you wouldn't just understand that cognitively, but that we'd experience that in our life 
and it'll change us like nothing else will. I pray you'd, I pray you'd grasp it, Paul says. And not that we just grasp a little bit of it, but we grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Here's Paul's prayer and here's my prayer for you. We wouldn't just understand a little bit of it, but we'd understand how wide and long and high and deep. You'd understand every angle of it. You'd understand every dimension of it, of his love for you and to, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Here's what you need to understand. God loves you more than you can imagine. He loves you more than we can humanly comprehend. His love for you is so rich, so deep, so high. And I pray you grasp it, that you may be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. How can you be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God? Well, Paul points to its understanding his love. There's something about understanding the love of Christ that will empower you, that will strengthen you, that will sustain you in a way that nothing else in this world will, that you would be rooted in it, you'd be established in it. And so that's what we're studying today. And what we're studying today is absolutely critical. So I'd like to read our, our section of verses that we're going to be studying in Romans chapter 5 uh, together. We're going to read this out loud and then we're going to unpack it and go back through it verse by verse. So if you would, why don't you stand to your feet with me to stand up in honor of God's word and then uh, we're, we'll draw some application. But here it is, Romans chapter 5. Uh, verses 6 through 11, and here's what it says. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, Father, we just thank you for your word. And God, we pray that you would speak to your church today, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that God, we grasp how wide and long and deep and rich is your love for us, God, not just for the person next to us, but God, may we allow it to sink into our heart individually that you love us. May we settle that in our minds. May we settle that in our hearts today for your praise and for the strengthening of your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, why don't you give someone a high five and say, God loves you, even you. God loves you, even you, even you, even you. Then you can have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat. I would suggest to you that those verses that we just read are perhaps the most profound passages in all of Scripture. What we just read is the greatest truth in all the Bible. Some scholars have said that what we just read is actually the Apostle Paul's commentary on John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal Life. And because of the weight of this text, because of the, just the, how rich uh, what we're about to study is, I, I hope you're taking some notes. In the way in, if you've got a program, uh, these are my notes you can follow along. Also on our Central Christian Church app, uh, you can follow along, make your own notes there, see the verses and all that. But I, I hope you refer back to this and in your time with the Lord uh, to, to pray over these, these texts, to, to meditate on them, to marinate 
in it, allow it to sink into your heart and your mind, and allow God to speak to you uh, long past today. Uh, Paul gives us three proofs that God loves us, three proofs that God loves us. God doesn't just say that he loves us, he proves it by what he did. So the first proof is this, God, God's love is proved by what he did. God's love for you is proved by what he did. Let's look at it. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? By the death of his son. Here it is. Five times in just four verses, Paul points to God loves you. And it's proved not by his words, but by his sacrificial death. Like he laid down his life to display his love for you. He laid down his life to rescue you, to have relationship with you, to bridge a gap between you and God that nothing else in this world could bridge. He loves you that much. If this passage teaches us anything, it's that God, God loves you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates. God demonstrates. That could be God proves, God illustrates, God shows his love for you. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. Hey, here's the deal. Here's what I hope you let this sink in. God loves you. God, he loves you. And to a degree that you and I can't imagine. And I know for some, if you've been in the church while you're like, I know that, bro. Like, teach me something else. No, like, have you settled it in your heart? Have you allowed this to sink in? It's not just the person next to you. It's not just, not just somebody that you look up to. No, he loves you. With all your shortcomings, with all, all the times that you've, you're, you've had those cringeworthy moments, he loves you. He loves you. And the greatest demonstration of his love is that he died to know you, to have relationship with you. John 15, 13 says, says God's love a greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. First John 4.10, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. First, we need to understand what, what God did. He laid down his life and it proves his love for you. Not only that, but God proved his love by who he died for, who he died for. It's important for us to understand who, who, who Jesus died for to better understand the depths of of his love. And Paul gives us four descriptive terms for the people that Christ died for. The first term he uses weak. Christ died for the weak. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, Christ died for us. That word weak, it could literally be translated without strength, utterly helpless, completely powerless. We were totally incapable of saving ourselves. When you and I were totally incapable of saving ourselves, what would Jesus do? He stepped in and he died for you. He did for you what we could never do on our own. Second, he not only died for the weak, but he died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not only were we weak, not only were we helpless in and of ourselves, but we were living an ungodly life, an ungodly life. It, it goes beyond just a, a kind of a glossing over, it could literally be like a, a profanity that mocks God, that challenges God. It's an irreverence towards God. There's no honor of God in it. In simplicity, we could just look at 
this term ungodly and take it at face value, uh, unlike God. For you and I, human beings created in the image of God by our own volition, by our own choices, by our own thoughts, by our own words, by our own actions, choosing to live life unlike he created us to live, an ungodly life. And that's who Jesus came to die for. We're going to unpack that, that image of God and how we chose to live counter to that next week when we study uh, Romans 5, 12. But the point this week is to realize that Christ died for completely helpless, completely wicked, irreverent people who choose to live life opposite of God's design. And that's you. And that's me. Not only that, but he died for sinners, Paul says. He died for Sinners. Romans 5 7 says, For while one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. Now, at face value, this looks a little bit contrary because it seems like a righteous person would be better than just a good person. But Paul's not talking about righteous in the sense of having right standing with God. He's talking about someone who lives life by a moral code, that they have ethics, uh, they do right and wrong, they're a rule follower. Uh, versus a good person who someone not only has a moral compass, but someone who looks to do good for others. They see a need, they meet the need. And they're willing to go above and beyond whatever is asked of them to do, to do good towards others. Uh, think of like, like your mama. She, she goes above and beyond. She went above and beyond for you. Like when no one else would. Like no one else was willing to change her stinky diaper. She was, right? That's what Paul's saying here is like, they went, they're so good to me. I would be, perhaps for someone like that, maybe I could lay down my life for them. Before a moral person, a lot of times a moral person is very rigid. Uh, they're a rule follower, but not necessarily a dude you want to go hang out with. You know? And so, so that's what, what Paul's saying here. But perhaps scarcely for a righteous person, someone with just a moral compass, would someone really be willing to die? But perhaps maybe for a good person, one would dare to die. Unless they're a Raiders fan, then there's no, no <laughs> sacrifice. No sacrifice there. Chiefs fans, though, <laughs> whatever you want, Lord. All right. That's what Paul's saying. Now he's drawing a contrast, right? So the way that we operate versus the way God's op God operates. So if, like for my mama, maybe I would be willing to lay down my life. Mama, I would. Okay. But, but maybe, I don't know. But here's what he says, Romans 5, 8. But God, not just for someone who went above and beyond for him. But God shows his love while you were still a sinner. Christ died. That word sin, like it's not a popular term, but it's one we need to understand. And it's in the original language, it was actually an archery term. It's this idea of an archer drawing a bow. And if I was trying to hit the O in home right there, that's the bullseye. I see the target. I know the target. I'm, I can try to hit the target, but that's kind of boring. What about the camera? I think I'm going to aim at the camera. That's sin. I know the target. It's clear. It's evident. I could shoot at it. I'm just going to choose not to. That's what Paul unpacks for us in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. It's not that we don't understand right from wrong. The human condition is that we understand, uh, we have a moral framework that God's law is written on our heart. We have this understanding of, I know I should do this, but there's times in my life I just want to point my target to be somewhere else. And in that moment, we miss the mark. In that moment, we don't live up to God's standards. In that moment, we often don't live up to our own standards, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And ultimately, it's our sin that has separated us from God, a person who's missed the mark. And Paul points, Paul's point in all of this is, is that 
when we were completely helpless, Christ died for that person. When we were living a life that was ungodly, contrary to God's design for our life, he died for that person. Whenever we were missing the mark, choosing, seeing the target, intentionally shooting at a different target in the midst of that, he loved you and was willing to lay down his life for you. Listen, there was nothing admirable about us that made God think, man, if I, can, if I could get that boy on my team, wow, we would really, we could take some ground. No, there was nothing admirable about me. There was nothing that would draw that, say, God would say, man, I just, I need them. That was never part of the equation. I know that's a hard truth to hear, but it is the truth. And Paul talks about this reality over and over again. He talks about it in Titus 3.3. He talks about it here in Romans 5. He talks about it in Ephesians 2. Let's look at it in Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. He says, he says, you used to live in sin. There's the idea. You used to live a life that was intentionally aiming at the wrong target, intentionally missing the mark, just like the rest of the world. The rest of the world's living in that camp. And here's what we need to know. Obeying the devil. Like, wow, Paul, what a... Unpack that for me, right? And we could spend all day talking about this, honestly, but, but we just need to have a, a biblical understanding of the Bible is to understand that there are two groups of people in our world today. There's a group of people that's under wrath. We talked about that in Romans chapter one. And there's a group of people that's under grace, God's preferential treatment, God's unmerited favor. And there's two groups of people. And I, I wish there were more options, but the Bible's clear. Like that's, that's really it. And for the group of people that are, are under God's wrath, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that, that they're deceived and they're living in obedience to the devil and not in obedience to God. goes on to say about the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And some people say, well, man, I don't, I don't really think I need to be saved, right? Like, I think, I'm, I think I'm good. I think God's a loving God. Like, I think I'll... I don't need to be a fanatic about all this. I mean, going to church, being a Christian, nah, I'm not really sure that's, that's for me. I don't, think, I don't think it's that important. And in saying statements like that or thinking thoughts like that, they prove that 2 Corinthians 4.4 is true of them, where Paul writes that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, that they're literally, they can't see it. They can't perceive it. Their minds are blinded to the reality of their need, need for God. And if that's where you are today, I would just say this, like, hey, we're not making fun of you. We're not mocking you because the reality is we've all been there. And here's what Paul says. All of us, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. In other words, there was a time when we were under God's wrath too. But the good news is you don't have to stay there. The good news is that God loves you and he laid down his life for you. And when you put your faith in that, when you put your confidence in that, when you surrender to that, you can be living under God's grace and his redemptive work in your life. It's important for us to remember who Jesus died for so we can grasp how deep his love is for us. The fourth individual that Paul lays out that Jesus died for, that he died for enemies, enemies. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, 
Like God didn't wait for you to sit down the rifle and wave a flag of surrender before he died for you. He didn't wait for you to, to get saved before he started loving you. Like while we were his enemies, living contrary to his design for your life, living, living contrary to the way that, that he would want us to, while we were aiming at the wrong target on purpose time and time again, following the inclinations and the passions of our own heart, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We saw this in Romans 1 through chapter 3 that mankind is actively opposed, actively opposed. Not passively opposed, but actively opposed uh, to God. Sometimes it's overtly, sometimes it's very clear, sometimes it's covertly, like it's a little bit hidden. Like you don't necessarily see it on the surface, but in their hearts, there's rebellion against God. A, a, a heart apart from God, it, it does not delight in God. It does not worship God. It does not honor God. It does not really care about God. It's just focused on, on self. And more than that, mankind apart from God's redemptive work in their life is opposed to God. It's a, it's, there's an enemy of God. Paul would write this in Romans 8, 7, for the sinful mind, look at this, it's sometimes hostile to God. No, it's always, always. It's always hostile to God. It never obeyed God's law and it never will. It never will. There's, there's hostility there. The, another translation, the New King James says, says there's, there's enmity towards God. It's not just hostility. It's like, like you're an enemy of God in your heart uh, towards God towards God. And you say, well, what's that? Well, like, how does that even happen? Like, what does that even mean? Here's what we need to know. We need to understand that God's position is always to be the Lord, like to be the ultimate authority in, in our life. And we buck back at that. Like we push back at that. We're like, yeah, I know. Like you're the creator of the universe. I know I'm created. You're the creator. I know that, but I still want to do my own thing. That's the sinful nature. It's always hostile to God. It's fighting for position. It's fighting for authority. Who's going to be the ultimate authority in your life? Is it going to be you or is it going to be God? That's the tension. That's where the hostility comes in. Uh, we saw that baptism visit, which, by the way, how awesome was it? Twelve of you, when publicly their faith got baptized, that was awesome. Yeah, we're still celebrating with you, man. And I would say this, if you haven't been baptized, you haven't gone public with your faith, uh, that is your next step. Like, like don't pass go, like don't collect a thousand dollars, just go get baptized. Like it is the most important thing to identify with him. And you say, well, man, I don't know if I'm ready for that. We say, well, if you're like, are you a Christian? If you're saved, you're ready. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to process it. If you, you're a Christian, you haven't been baptized, like, and you're not willing to get baptized, then maybe, maybe it's just evidence that you're not, not really a Christian because you still want to call the shots. And that's the tension you, you want to be, be in charge. One, one question I ask everyone that gets baptized is, have you made Jesus the leader and the forgiver of your life? We all want Jesus to be like the forgiver of our life, right? But the leader part, that's where the rub comes in. Like I'm not willing, I'm not sure I'm willing to allow God's word to be the ultimate authority in my life. I still want to have authority over my life. And that's the tension. That's why there's hostility. That's why there's enmity with God and, and humanity. Because whenever we are followers of Jesus, we've come to this place where we say, God, you're in charge. Whatever you want, I'm in. We don't do it perfectly. We're imperfect people in progress, but that's the, the trajectory of our life. We're not, it's not perfectionist direction. Our lives are pointed in that, in that direction. And so this is amazing. Not only did God prove his love by what he did, he died a sacrificial death, but God proves his love by who he died for. That's you, that's me. Enemies of God, people living life contrary to God, ungodly lives, living sinful lives, while we were weak, utterly helpless to save 
ourselves. Amazing, amazing. Third and final point is this. God proves his love by how he now relates to us. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's important for you to understand how God now sees you, how God now relates to you. And here's Paul's reasoning. He reasons that if, if God died, if Jesus died a sacrificial death, and not just, just dying a death, but dying for, for people who were ungodly, people who were weak, people who were sinners, people who were living as enemies of God, if that's true, then verses 9 through 10 must also, must also be true. And Paul's going to state this principle in verse 9. And he's going to double down on it. Like every good teacher, if something's really important, they're not even going to say it once. They're going to repeat it a second time with more, more emphasis. And that's what, what Paul does. So here it is. Here's the principle. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justified. And Paul, over and over, if you've been with us, you're like, man, we get justification. Like you've been talking about it. Like for weeks and weeks. And I just keep talking about because Paul keeps talking about it. Because he wants us to understand this. What does justification mean? He, he says over and over again. Here it is again. You've been justified by his blood. Let this sink in. Let, let marinate on this truth. Like, like sit with this one for a little bit. You've been justified. And what does that mean? Here's our definition. Justification is the act of God. Whereby he forgives the unsaved person. And he doesn't just forgive them, he credits to them, he assigns to them the righteousness of Christ when through faith they believe. If we don't understand justification, then we don't understand salvation. This is a fundamental understanding of what Jesus has done for you. And understanding this helps us understand now how God relates to you, how he relates to me. That, that you've been forgiven at the moment of your salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus, you are justified. What does that mean? You are forgiven as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. So far as he removed your sin and transgression from you. And here's the wonderful reality of that truth. It's not just part of your sin. It's not just the little sins. It's not just the big sins. It's all of them. All your sins, past sins, present sins, future sins, erased, forgiven, dealt with on the cross. I love that old hymn that we sang a portion of today, my sin, oh, the bliss, oh, this, this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Therefore, I can make this declaration, it is well. It is well with my soul. Oh, the bliss, not, 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 not just part of it, all of it, sins forgiven. Some of you need to settle this in your heart. You've been forgiven. Future sins down the road, next week, if you blow it, I hope you don't, this isn't a license to sin, Paul's gonna talk about that. But if you do, He's already created a solution for it. He, he, don't let it be a speed bump. Don't let it be a roadblock. Don't let it trip you up. Forgiven. Not only that, but you've been, been assigned the righteousness of Christ. How many of you know you can forgive someone, not have relationship with them? But God, because he loves you so much, not only forgives your sin, but now he assigns the righteousness of Christ to you. So when God sees you, when, when you, the courts of heaven have rendered a verdict over your life, forgiven, assigned the righteousness of Christ, now having right standing with God. So whenever your day comes, just like my day, when I die, we can approach that moment with confidence, free from fear. Why? Because I'm not going to the throne with my own righteousness. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
There's been a verdict rendered over my life. And if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a verdict rendered over your life. You need to understand this. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's why the book of Hebrews says we can come boldly to the throne of grace, to receive grace, to receive mercy, to help us in our time of need. Why? Because I'm not coming on my own good works. It's not about what I've done. It's all about what Jesus has done for me. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And how righteous was Christ? Judgment's already been rendered because of what Jesus did on the cross. Colossians 2.14 says this, the record of charges against you was nailed to the cross. In other words, whenever Jesus died on the cross for you, he paid the penalty for your sin. He bore your judgment so you can now carry his righteousness. He who is clothed in shame, so now you can carry his glory. It's this great transaction. If we don't understand justification, then we will miss it and the enemy will beat you up. Your conscience will beat you up at every turn. That's why Paul would write this. Because of justification, because your sin's been eradicated, past, present, and future, because you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, Paul's going to get to this place in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 where he says this. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How could this be true if justification hasn't taken place? Listen, if, you're, there's still, if, you, if you have to pay the penalty for some of your sin, if God forgive the big sins, but you got to like work your way through the small sins, then like, how could this be true? There's condemnation. But because of the cross, all the evidence has been shredded. A verdict's been rendered. Punishment satisfied. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful truth. And Paul doubles down on this one. Romans 8, 33 through 34, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And we're going to talk about that, what that means. It is God who justifies. In other words, there it is again. God, you've been justified by God. So, so who can bring any charge if you've been justified? And then he asks the question, this is a good question. Who is it that condemns? Who condemns you? Like if before God you've been forgiven, if before God you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then, then who, how could you experience condemnation? Who condemns you? I would suggest it's you. I would suggest it's me. If God's forgiven me and I feel condemnation, then maybe it's because I haven't been able to forgive myself. Here's what's true, especially for people who have gloriously blown it. Here's what I wrestle with. I know God's forgiven me. I understand that theologically. I understand that conceptually. But sometimes I still, whenever I blow it, I feel this weight. I, I sometimes feel like gross. And so I come into a place like this and people are like, it is well with my soul. And I'm like, I'm not sure. God's forgiven me. Like we're, they're worshiping him. And we come to this place where like, I don't know, like after what I've done this week, I don't think, I don't know. That highlights an immature understanding of justification. That, that, that highlights that we don't really grasp forgiveness. That we don't really understand how, what God has done for us. Listen, there's no condemnation. It's God who's justified you. So who is it that's condemning you at that point? I would suggest it's you. It's condemning yourself because not only did you violate God's standards, you violated your own standards. And sometimes that's hard to let go of. But whenever we understand this, it leads to a new sense of freedom. He, he says this, who is it that condemns you? It's Christ, Christ Jesus. He died, he died for us. Like he, he bought your salvation. He bought your freedom. 
So walk in that. And I would just make a distinction here too. Uh, Condemnation and conviction are two different things. Sometimes whenever we blow it, we feel conviction. And that's God's way of saying, man, I got something better for you. Like, Like what you did there, like not my best. I got a better plan that will help you thrive in life. And that wasn't it. So go this direction. It's to move us along. It's to nudge us along. Condemnation is like where I'm like, I'm worthless. There's no hope for me. That's not from God. That's from the devil. We need to distinguish the two, conviction versus condemnation. If you're still walking around feeling a sense of condemnation, I would just invite you to marinate, think about justification, think about reconciliation. We're going to talk about that and sit in God's love. Think about how much God, he loves you. we got to get a grasp on this. If not, here's what will happen. The enemy will come and he'll come to beat you up and he'll bring up a list of all the things that you've done wrong, all the things I've done wrong. And if we're not careful, we'll be like, yeah, you're right. I, I do suck. Like I am worthless. You're right. I did, I did blow it. But, but if we understand what God's done for us, then we can say, no, no, no. Like I've been forgiven. It's not my right. I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. As far as the east is from the west, like I know I shouldn't have done it, but God's already removed my sin and transgressions from me. Now I can, I can walk with confidence before God. I can, I can still talk to him. I'm not separated from God. I just need to run back to him. And when the enemy comes knocking to bring up all the things you've done in your past, you can remind him of his future. And you can remind him what God's done for you. And if we don't, we don't respond in that way, yeah, we're going to face a, a hard time in our spiritual walk with God. That's why this is so, so important. So settle it in your heart. God loves me. God loves you. Romans 5, verse 10 says this. This is the word reconciliation. Here's what it says, Romans 5, 10. Uh, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now shall we be reconciled, that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Like if his death brought reconciliation, how much more will his life bring to you, to me? This word reconciliation is an interesting term. It's, um, yeah, the, the Greek term is not really important, but here's what it means. It, it means, it means to, to change mutually. There's mutual change in this. It's two Greek words, actually. One means to, to draw to an exact point. The other one means to change. And so in other words, what, what Jesus did for you, whenever you're reconciled to God, once you were separated, but God brought you to the exact same point is what it means. In our modern day vernacular, we would say, God brought us on the same page. You're once separated, but now you're on the same, same page with God. Let's look at this again, Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more shall we be reconciled? Now that we've been reconciled, shall we be saved from his life? The message paraphrase puts it this way. If when we were at our worst... We were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son. Just think of how our lives will be expanded and deepened by means of the resurrection life. We have actually received this amazing friendship with God. That's how God relates to you now. Because of what Jesus has done for you. He doesn't see you as an enemy anymore. He doesn't see you as as just a sinner anymore. He doesn't see you as weak anymore. He doesn't see you as condemned anymore. He doesn't see you under wrath anymore. He invites you in not only to the family, but to friendship. We all have family members that we see at family reunions that we don't really interact with. Or we might say hi, but just at the family reunion. But a friend we talk to, a friend we're in communication with, a friend we hang out with. That's what Paul says, Romans 5.11. More than that, we rejoice. That's that word we talked about a few times now, it means to boast. 
to celebrate, to congratulate yourself about what you have. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, we, we congratulate ourselves about what we have in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Here's the idea. You, you talk about it, like you're so jacked for it. Like you're, you're fired up for it. When you go to work, you're like, dude, I don't know. I just need to tell you, man, I, I, I was living life on my own terms, like way opposite of what God designed for me. But in the midst of my brokenness, he forgave me. And now, can I just tell you, he didn't just forgive me, but he clothed me in the righteousness of God, a righteousness not my own. I don't deserve it, but I know because of what he's done for me, I know I'm, I'm right with the creator of the universe. And not only that, he's given me peace with God. He's given me access to grace. And dude, after all I've done, I don't know if you can believe this, but now I stand before God with preferential treatment. Like I, I treat my kids differently than I treat other kids, but, but God treats me that same way because I'm his kid now. Can you believe it, man? And you just go around talking about it. You boast in it. You rejoice in it because you understand justification. You understand you were separated, but now God brought you back to the exact same point. You're on the same page together. And not only that, but like he loves you. And not just a little bit, more than you can imagine. He loves you so much that while you were living life opposite of what God intended for you, he was willing to lay down his life for you. Very short list of people you'd probably be willing to lay down your life for, certainly not your enemies. But God loved you that much. And we just got to talk about it. We got to rejoice in it. We got to boast in it. Why? Because I got a glimpse of it. I don't fully grasp it yet. I'm trying to. But the more I sit in it, the more I just got to talk about it because I got, I got to celebrate what, what I have, what God's done for me in Christ. When we understand justification, when we understand reconciliation, when we grasp how much God loves us, it frees us from condemnation. And a natural byproduct is evangelism. We just, we just rejoice in what God's done for us. Listen, God loves you. He proves his love for you by his death. He proves it by reaching out to you when you were at your worst. He continues to prove his love for you, but now how he relates to you today. He calls you his friend. Romans 5.11, New Living Translation. So now we can rejoice in this wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Friends. Once under God's wrath, now forgiven by God. Once enemies of God, now adopted into the family of God. Once separated from God, now reconciled to God. Once alienated from God, now friends with God. Wonders of all wonders. God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you, God, not just that you say you love us, but God, you demonstrate your love for us by laying down your life for us. So God, for everyone here that doesn't know that love experientially, not just cognitively, not just a, an understanding of it mentally, but God, they haven't had your love poured out into their hearts. God, I pray today will be the day they experience that. As you continue to pray with head bowed, eye closed, I'd be wrong for me not to give you an opportunity to connect with Jesus after a message like this. Here's the deal. Our sin, your sin, my sin has separated us from God. 
But Jesus on the cross, he, he took the penalty that you deserve, that I deserve on the cross. Whenever you put your faith in him, when you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, when you believe that he didn't just die on the cross, but they rose again, the Bible says that you can be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell for eternity? Yeah, for sure. But more than that, saved from another day separated from God. Saved from another day without relationship with God. As we just read, you can now be friends with God. Not clothed in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. If that's you and you want to cross the line of faith and, and surrender your life to make Jesus the leader of your life, you're going to let him call the shots and the forgiver of your life. You're going to experience a, a new day because of God, because of him coming alive in your heart. Then that can be yours today. If that's where you're at, I just invite you to pray a prayer to God. Talk to God in your own words or talk to him. Say something like this to him. Say, say, God, I realize I've blown it. I realize my sin has separated me from you. But God, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. That, that it was my sin that you were paying the penalty for. So God, I just want to say thanks for dying for me, to rescue me. Now God, I pray you forgive me of my sin. I pray God, you give me a fresh start. God, I don't believe that you just died, but I believe you rose again. So God, because you're alive, I'm asking you to come alive in my heart, in my life. Pray, God, you bring freedom to the areas of my life that I know are holding me captive. And God, I can't do it on my own. I've tried. But I'm asking your Holy Spirit to empower me to do what I could never do on my own. And that begins today by me surrendering my life to you. So today, God, I give you my life. And I'm going to let you call the shots. If that's your prayer today, as you continue to pray with head bowed, eye closed, I'd love to pray for you before we get out of here. Uh, so if you just show me who I'm praying for, show God you mean business. I'd love to see you just slip up your hands. Show me who I'm praying for. 